Thanks to Linode for once again sponsoring Does Not Compute. Linode has everything you need to get up and running with your own virtual private servers in just minutes. You can choose from any of their eight data centers around the world, and Linode's pricing starts at only $5 a month for a one gigabyte server. Every Linode server is backed by SSD storage and runs on Intel E5 processors over a 40 gigabit network. Linode also provides add-on services to make managing your servers a breeze. Easily set up automated backups, load balancers, and system monitoring to give yourself straightforward scaling and peace of mind. Since you get full root access to your virtual machines, that means you can run just about anything on them. Encrypted disks, Rails apps, Docker containers, your own Git or VPN server, or whatever else you can dream up. If you're looking for a server with a bit more power, Linode's got you covered there too with their high memory plans. Those plans start at only $60 per month for a 16 gigabyte box. Across the board, Linode's RAM offerings are double what most of their competitors offer at the same price point. So you can really get a lot of power for not much money. Learn more about Linode today by visiting linode.com slash does not compute. When you sign up that link using the program code does not compute 2017, they'll give you $20 in account credit. Thanks again to Linode for their continued support of does not compute. And remember to check out linode.com slash does not compute to learn more. So during the past week, I've made two separate little applications for helping me pick colors, which is not something I was expecting to do this week. By application, what do you what do you mean? Uh, you sent me that just like simple, just like simple web apps, like a little single page. Yeah, yeah. I think you sent me a couple of CodePen things, right? Yeah, they're both on CodePen. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I mean, that's it's kind of it's cool that you can just do that. You know, it. A lot of people, I guess especially when they're learning to program, they have trouble thinking of things to make. Like, I don't know what to make. And then once you start going, there's so many little things that you can do, the tiny little tools that you can make, tiny little things that are, are very useful to you. I think that's pretty cool. Dozens and dozens and dozens of them. There's like infinite possibilities. Um, and I mean, even with something like this, where it's like, oh, how many ways are there to select a color, right? I, in one week, made two different versions of a thing to help me pick color palettes because there are very different requirements for, for the two different uh, apps of this. Is so for. one, I assume one's for like, is it for like the printing system for, for Nest Notes? Um, so the, the first one that I did was for, was for Nest Notes. Uh, and basically the idea there is that we kind of need to work on our UI colors a little bit. Um, we have some brand colors defined and they work really nicely in print. And uh, they're, you know, they're, they're good. And we have some UI colors defined, but we're, we're having a bit of an issue with like a lack of contrast. And so that's just kind of something that we need to play with and figure out and get sorted. Um, but uh, basically, I just wanted a source of truth for that. So it seemed like a good opportunity to try out. Um, I believe they're just called CodePen Projects. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a thing they announced. They announced it probably about a month ago, I guess. And... They're, they're really cool. This is the first time I got to play with them. Uh, it lets you have like an entire file structure instead of just the three HTML, CSS, and JavaScript panes. Um, you can actually create like as many files as you want, I assume up to some practical limit. But uh, it's, really, it's really nice. You get like a full sidebar and tabs and all that stuff um, and a pretty pretty full-featured editor. It even has multi-selection, which I was impressed by. Kind of like a, a mini Cloud9 or something like that? Yeah, yeah, sort of. And it, what's really awesome is that it even lets you run Webpack. So, like, I have um, the Nest Notes one is split up into, you know, s different components, and they just are required as, as needed. That's pretty cool. I, two days ago, I split, I took, I took brunch out of a Phoenix project and replaced it with Webpack uh, for various reasons. And it 
it just works. I'm so glad that I got over the hump of, wow, this is crazy complicated. Yeah, yeah, me too. It, I mean, it, it definitely still is complicated, but like once you understand the basics, it's so easy to get something up and running with it. Um, and in CodePen's case, uh, you actually can't really customize it for, um, you can't really customize like Webpack config as far as I'm aware yet. Uh, so for example, I can't use view files in, um, in that code pen. I, I have to, I'm just using like standard JavaScript modules and exporting them. Um, just as just exporting objects. That's so pretty cool though. I, so I, I remember getting an email about code pen projects and I sent it to my mom cause she has lots of different sites that she's working on. And, um, that could be a good fit cause she's exploring responsive development right now. Um, just you know, getting getting her head wrapped around that, and something like CodePen Projects is perfect because there's really no trouble in spinning them up. She works on a couple of different computers, so she's having to transfer files back and forth. She's using GitHub, um, but there's still there's just still more to do and remember there. Whereas I feel like with CodePen Projects, you can just create one and forget about it. You don't have to worry about it, a lot of other stuff. Yeah, for sure. And one one of the things that I found a little bit in- interesting, I guess, about the CodePen projects is that you only get one on your account unless you're a pro user, which I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm not totally sure. I follow the logic there, but uh, whether or not I do isn't relevant, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that, that that's just what it is, right? Sure. Um. So that that's a bit of a limitation. And if it's like if I were paying for something and I was going to be doing a lot of projects in it, I would probably prefer to go with something like like cloud nine or, or just a web, uh, you know, one of the major web IDs basically. Right. There's another one that I heard of recently. I think Ken Dodds was tweeting about it. Um, that I am pretty sure is much more flexible in terms of what you can do and how you can configure it. Uh, I can't remember what it's called top of my head. I'll put it in the show notes, but there, there seems to be lots of these tools popping up and I see a lot of them are like specifically geared towards react, but I'm sure there's a few out there that might not be specifically geared towards react. I understand why it's becoming so popular and why so many of these tools are springing up. It, it's a pretty nice way to work. I like that you can just kind of spin up little projects for things. I, I don't think uh, this has always been kind of one of my concerns um, uh, over the last couple of years, actually, is as we move to these new tool sets and these new ways of thinking about and building web applications or the front ends of web applications specifically, that the that the startup time doesn't become too hard. And and there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, because I think it can be very useful to spin off little projects like this, like a like something to help you resolve color palettes. Um, making sure the barrier to entry stays low. Um, that's something that we've talked about a lot on the show. And I, I just I feel very strongly about that one of the greatest things about the web, about JavaScript, about all these tools is that historically they've been so easy for people to get into. And when you look at how complex something like webpack can be it's very intimidating to newcomers and even to a lot of experienced people and and so i'm really glad that we're kind of seeing those tools now be used in a way or presented in a way that makes them so easy to get up and running with and get those concepts into people's heads like if you use webpack on um in a code pen project you have some webpack experience so you kind of get a little bit of how that's how that's working together and how those things mesh but basically all you had to do was flip a switch on and off. Right. It removes a lot of the friction, uh, a lot of the friction out of getting started. And especially when, when you're newer in programming or when you're trying to learn a new concept, some of that friction can totally derail you. Uh, and it, I mean, that's, that's something that I experienced a lot was I would, I would, ha- I would be like struggling. I'd, I feel like I barely had a grasp on something. And then at a moment's notice, it could just be gone. 
and then and then I'm starting to set something up and one of my tools has a problem, <laughs> something's misconfigured or there's some random error and poof, it's gone. The idea is gone or the concept I was trying to hold on to is gone. And that's super, super frustrating and it, all, it hurts morale quite a bit too. So yeah, I, I totally agree. These tools, you know, they're great for everyone. Like you said, they're great for people that are learning because it removes that friction. But I think that, you know, especially the more apps we work on, the more they're kind of separated, right? You have your APIs and you have your clients. Well, it seems to me like you can do a lot of R&D with something like uh, CodePen Projects, you know, where you have your data that you can get. You have it, like a staging server somewhere. You can get hold of that stuff and then you can quickly prototype things without having to mess with any code that might be living in production. Yeah, and there's no, there's just nothing to set up. There's no repository to create. It's just It just exists somewhere, which I really like. There's nothing, nothing that has to live on your file system. There's no, it's just there in a browser and it works. And it's really, it's pretty awesome. I, I, I think this is uh, definitely something that we're going to be seeing a lot more of in the future. I'm, I'm very excited about that. Kind of like that, that next evolution of being able to quickly share things like CodePen and JS Fiddle. Um, kind of where those, where those go over the next year or two, I think will be pretty interesting and exciting. Yeah. Have you tried it on an iPad at all? Just curious. I haven't. I have not. I actually don't have an iPad currently. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you get rid of it. I'll have to try it on mine then. I, it sounds like it could be fun just if you have a quick idea, you know, just if you're somewhere in the car or like it's not in the car. Well, I, so since we do drive a lot now because I'm in Vermont, I tether on my phone on the iPad in the car. So I could do it from the car, but uh, it sounds like it could just be like a good, oh, I have a quick idea. Let me get this idea out. Um, another thing I really like about them is uh, I'm pretty sure most of them have some sort of, I, I know specifically that uh, CodePen does some sort of like sharing feature. So uh, I know in the case of CodePen, you can have like an account where you're a teacher and you have many people on it and it well, you just, it just has concurrent connections, you know, so you one person's typing and everyone sees it. Uh, and I've used that a lot with, you know, with my mom or other people that are learning front end stuff, we can spin one up and then we can just help each other out. And it seems to be a little bit less uh, flaky than something like Screen Hero is sometimes. I don't know, it's just a really good situation. It's like a good solution for so many different situations. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so that's something I'm going to be looking into more for sure, especially the web IDs just kind of as a whole. Um, it, it feels like it might finally be time for that to be something that I look at in a little bit more depth, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I remember... It has to have been a couple of years ago now. We tried the whole DigitalOcean, like spinning up a dev box and SSHing into it every day. And it didn't last more than a couple of days. I still have um, a, a dev box that I keep up on DigitalOcean and I use it occasionally. Um, it's it's really nice for just, just to have that set up around in case I'm traveling or whatever. I can always SSH into that if I need to. Um and uh, just get get some quick work done, deploy some things, or pull some code down to test something. Just double check things. If I'm, it's kind of nice, like if you sure. only have your phone for whatever reason, for example. And obviously, you're not going to be doing any heavy lifting programming on your phone, but just having the ability to like get into a machine that's fully featured and has all your stuff for on sure, it. Sure, it does some in the way of giving you some sort of mental security. It probably feels good having that. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's probably the that's probably the majority of why I like it. Up until up until like maybe last week, I would never even leave the house without my laptop, just because the CCO role and if if something happens, you got to be on call, and I'm the only one that's on call ever. <laughs> uh, so I started. I finally started going to practice um, without my laptop, 
and it's super stressful at the first, but now I'm kind of getting used to it. Yeah, it can be pretty stressful. Yeah. So I guess I could talk a little bit about uh, a little about my rationale for doing this color palette stuff in an app environment instead of app. I call it an app, a web browser, instead of just in like Photoshop or something similar, something like a more traditional place you might pick color palettes. Yeah. Um. So I, I guess uh, we'll, we can get a screenshot of this in show notes. But basically, the Nest Notes one in particular, uh, because one of the issues that we're having w- is with contrast, um, I wanted to show all of the all of the colors that have been chosen up front, as well as their hex codes and RGBA and all that stuff. Um, and I just set it up with Clipboard.js, which is fantastic and I highly recommend, where you can just click on those values and it just copies them to your clipboard. It's great. I'm adding clipboards to like everything I build now in the web just because we finally can easily. And it adds so much functionality with just a couple lines of code. Highly recommend that. Anyhow, that's a tangent. Um, so basically, there's a grid of colors, and you can click to copy them, like I said. And then down below that, I actually am also pulling in, uh, I have some a couple selects. I have a font size, a foreground, and a background. And it lets you choose from the colors in the palette for each one of those, and then actually shows you the contrast ratio, and whether that is a pass or fail for WCAG, AA, and AAA. Um, so for anybody who doesn't, doesn't know what that means, um, basically... When you're when you're doing UI work in particular, it's very important to make sure that your your colors have enough contrast. So for readability and, and things like that, um, and accessibility reasons, you there are some standards, uh, and the the standard that people follow is basically um, WCAG AA or AA or AAA. Uh, I don't know if that's supposed to be pronounced WCAG, but it's basically web accessibility guidelines. And if that contrast ratio, the difference between the two colors is high enough, then it passes, otherwise it fails. But that's something that a lot of designers, um, you see this, unfortunately, pretty often, don't really bother to check because it's like, oh, it looks fine on my beautiful $1,000 Macintosh screen, which is awesome. I mean, that's that's important and that's good. But when you are a 20-something with pretty decent eyesight and a really nice monitor. That's very different from being an 80-something with less decent eyesight and a mediocre yeah. phone screen, right? And so that's that's kind of one of those things that is that is super important and often gets overlooked. So I just wanted to make sure that that we're really focusing on that, especially with Nest Notes, because there is such a big focus on, you know, uh, bringing in grandparents and, and that sort of thing. So that that's very important to us. It makes a lot of sense. You know, the idea that you would do something like this in uh, in the web setting versus something that's more static like Photoshop or Sketch makes a ton of sense to me because just the the, the part where you said, you know, I have it so when you, you can change the palette, it auto-checks the contrast for me and it shows me the numbers. That, that alone saves you so much time because you're not dragging rectangles around. You're not clipping a screenshot and then checking it that way. You're just kind of automating the process, which makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and and I figure the other nice thing about this is that it'll give me a source of truth going forward. It's like here are the colors that we use in our UI, and that's something that's always kind of been an issue um, at previous jobs I've had. Weirdly enough, just just mm-hmm. having consistent colors can be really really difficult. Um, and, and so I so I think putting this into a spot that actually has some additional functionality, like being able to copy them out easily in d- different values and check contrasts and all that, it kind of provides that value that hopefully means I'll keep coming back and, and the rest of the company will keep coming back to reference this and pull our colors from here always. So we have that that single source of truth, which is something that is so important in programming. Yeah, it's super it's super important in programming and I think it's just as important in visual design 
Um, that's kind of, I think, partly why that's why we're seeing so many design systems coming out because they're essentially building the source of truth for the entire application in, in terms of, you know, the visual design, the colors, the type, the sizing, the, and a lot of, you know, like a lot of the design systems I see coming out are including contrast checking and things like that, you know, to make sure that um, the contrast is good to go. And I think that's, I think that's great. Um, and I, it's cool that a lot of people, I'm not saying that people didn't realize that before, but it seems that there's more of an emphasis on that. And it's kind of part of the big shift from designing everything out statically, all the screens in an application to designing out a system that can be used, you know, the smaller blocks that can be used to build something uh, on a larger scale. And to me, it makes perfect sense that you would do some of these things in, in the web setting because that's that's where it's going to live, you know? So you want to make sure that, you know, I mean... Photoshop and Sketch and all that, they do good, they do a good job at managing color profiles and things. So what you're seeing in the document is probably what you're going to be seeing rendered on in the browser anyway. Um, but it, it, there's just something to be said about rendering, like working with what you're working with in the end medium where it's going to be displayed to the users. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't super thought that through, but specifically with text, mm-hmm. uh, that can be very important because, I mean, I think everybody's pretty aware how... Um, inconsistent text rendering can be in tools like Photoshop sometimes oh, yeah. as compared to what you see in the browser. Yeah, it was the bane of my existence for a long time because you would get a PSD and the fonts would be tweaked. They would have like specific aliasing set on them. And then I would take it to the browser and the designers would always come back like, hey, this is a match. I'm like, it's not going to match. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> there's only so much I can do. You know, and then there was, remember all those different hacks like... Uh, what was it called? Cypher? I can't remember. It's like rendering specific fonts with flash and embedding and stuff. Yeah, 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 Cypher. That all seems wild, like crazy now. Like, why would we go through all of that? People like pretty fonts. Yeah. What was yeah. that? Sca- scalable inman flash replacement, right? I Yeah, I don't remember. So I came in at the tail end of it. I came in at the tail end of it. So I, I remember like looking at it and being like, what in the world? <laughs> I don't want to do this. Uh, it's amazing that the web works at all with yeah. all these hacks that we have yeah. everywhere it's better these days but man for quite a while it was just hacks all the way down yeah it's kind of like i was talking with uh i guess a new friend of mine in the elixir slack channel we were just talking about stuff and i was like man what did we do before even like the view and the react paradigm and i mentioned that to you too and you were and you were like we did we did so many things <laughs> Yeah, we did a lot. We did a lot of things, but it was... We did a lot with what we had. It was not a lot. We didn't have very much to work with, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm feeling you know, pretty spoiled these days with the, with the nice tools and the nice things that we have, which is pretty awesome. And uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting, and a number of non, um, non-programming, non-designer people have sent me links to this article, was the article that John Gold wrote on behalf of Airbnb. Uh, where they're basically using React components to render to a sketch canvas. Um, so they're basically writing uh, components that could theoretically be used in production settings, and they're rendered, rendering them to the, the, the sketch canvas. And um, you, When you say sketch, you mean the app, the desktop app? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't seen this article. I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's super interesting. So I, it's been a while since I read it. I mean, it didn't come out that long ago, but I've got so many things floating out of my head. So basically... Um, I uh, remember when he released Renee. I think it was right around the time he came. He was on our show. Yeah, um, yeah. So instead of rendering to the browser context, it just renders a sketch now. So it renders into like Sketch artboards. So you can do different artboards and you can do different things. And so essentially, when you're building out 
your style guide for whatever you're working on, you actually just write React components and it renders into the sketch canvas, which can be shared across multiple people, um, which is which is pretty crazy because uh, they're basically saying like, hey, you can now in designing, you know, you're designing in the medium that you're going to be essentially producing the end result in, which is React components. And now it's rendering to a, a sketch file, which you can use and share to other people as well, just the visual representation of it. So if there's people that are making design decisions, there's people that are having to check things out, like managers, for example, that don't know anything about engineering at all, you can be working on your front end components, render it to react, render it to sketch, send it across for approval and stuff like that. Um, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely something I'll have to read some more about. Yeah. But it's the whole idea is that there's more of, I feel like there's more of a focus on working in the medium that is going to be used in production, uh, working closer to the metal, so to speak, uh, for that. And then using the tools that we have to produce things that we need to use to work with others as well, like a, a fully fleshed out sketch document with rendered components that are rendering to a sketch document or that can render to the browser either way. So uh, you're still in the process of converting design collective over to an elixir app right uh correct now i'm sure the listeners are like why what in the world you know first spa now elixir (laughs) but yeah i uh that's what i'm doing and i am feeling so i've been doing it for maybe a week and a half now just a few a couple hours here and there and i've made way more progress than i thought i would and i'm feeling i'm actually feeling really comfortable in in elixir and writing elixir and solving problems with elixir now that's awesome. I mean, that's a pretty quick, quick spin up time then, right? Because you hadn't done a whole lot with Elixir previously, other than just kind of playing around with it and, and learning the ropes a little, right? Right. Yeah. The only thing I had shipped with Elixir before was the DNC topics thing that I made, uh, where you can you can search basically our show notes for topics, and then it'll, it'll surface shows with that topic. Um, so you know, I deployed one thing <laughs> to Heroku, and uh, I've kind of started various other things and just never really finished them. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm making a ton of progress. I think part of what helps is that the I have a bunch of data that's already kind of there. So how I started it was I, I took a data dump and then I put it in a new database <laughs> and then I connected, uh, I connected the Elixir app. I took a, took data, a data dump. dump. <laughs> I took a data dump and put it in a new database and connected Elixir to it. And yeah, so I'm generating migrations and stuff like that, but I haven't, I'm not running them yet. Well, I guess my test environment's running them because I don't have any preceded data in that sure. environment. Um, yeah, but I'm just making sure that the schemas match and things like that. I'm not making any schema changes right now. I'm just trying to do a one, one-to-one parity and it's going really well. Um, it's stupid fast. It's not even funny how fast even the server rendered pages are because a lot of it is server rendered. And this is kind of an interesting... Um, change of pace for me because I had started building out a, a spa for it. And I came to the conclusion that spas are very difficult and they're very hard to get right. And for me and my skill set, it's harder for me to maintain two separate code bases, especially one that's a spa and get all the work done that I need, if that makes sense. Um, so instead of what I started doing was I have Vue in the new Elixir app and I'm using Vue and I'm using the, ben- like I have the benefits of Vue and, and reactive UIs and stuff. Um, but the majority of the rendering is actually just uh, Phoenix rendering the templates for me. That's very interesting because that, uh, part of the reason that I switched away from that model with Nest Notes is because I was having trouble maintaining the single code base. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting is that the Phoenix, the Phoenix version feels a lot smaller. It doesn't feel nearly as spread out across different places. I'm not exactly sure why that is, uh, but I it feels much smaller to me. It feels more concise. Um, so I'm having less of an issue with that. And another big thing for me was that I'm realizing that more and more sites are going spa. And while like a really a nice spa is like is it is pleasure experience, it's a nice yeah. experience, you know, they're a pleasure to use. It's not often that you get those. It's more often than you get kind of a thing yep. that breaks a lot. And <laughs> I'm just trying to be real about my current skill sets. I could probably build a spa if I could focus all my attention on it. But um, I I'm, I don't have the luxury of being able to focus all my attention on it because I'm also doing marketing. I'm also doing server side stuff. I'm also doing DevOps stuff. You know, so for me, it's simpler to fall back to a lot of the stuff just being server rendered. And so what I what I, I guess what my goal is with this is is providing like a good base web experience, like a classic web experience. I don't like I don't mean like a crippled web experience. That's like you know, doesn't feel modern and slow and the page refreshes feel bad. And, you know, I'm trying to just do something that's like baseline, just a good experience for users. And then from there, build up and do more interactive UIs and things like that, because really the customers don't care about that. Maybe some do, but the vast majority don't. They want to be able to click on a product and buy it. That's all, you know. And I mean, in some cases, that can be a a very complex thing, like depending on what your app is. But in your case like for your particular situation, purchasing is a pretty straightforward thing. They like how something looks, right. they want to add it to their cart and buy it. That's it. There's no there's not like customization exactly. or anything going on. So you you kind of have that ability. And I really I really uh I think this is a great example of, of looking at looking at your skill set, looking at your time, looking at your tools available. And then like, okay, for this particular case you know what, I can do mostly server rendered and that's fine. And that's actually going to be better because it's not going to be too much for me to handle. Exactly. And so what I was running into with the rail side was that I put a lot of work into chunking down the RAM. Like I mentioned, I split it into a third of what it was using. And there's still a good bit of work that could be done around there. Uh, but what I found was, you know, I can't, I can't necessarily simplify things down to the server side because that's where that's where some of the RAM usage is coming from and the slowness is coming from. And then you have to introduce some sort of caching layer, whether it's memcached or like a Redis cache or something like that. So then you're introducing another moving part into your system, which is just another thing to worry about and to know about, right? Um, So that's kind of what led me to realizing like, hey, I like Elixir. I'm getting more comfortable in it now. I think I can do this to... Like I messaged you that one night, I was like, hey, Paul, I hooked this up to the database. Check this out (laughs) to... I'm doing it, you know, and it's been working great. I've been able to simplify a lot of the views. I've been able to simplify a lot of the logic because I'm not splitting certain things between Ruby and JavaScript. It's all just kind of happening in Elixir. And that's been really nice. And I think what part of the benefit is that it's fast enough. The way that the way that Phoenix handles templates is that, you know, obviously Elixir is a compiled language. So it takes uh, EEX, which is similar to ERB. It takes that and converts it into an IO list. And so when you when you get a page instead of actually converting that on on request you're it's only it's basically just interpolating a string on request which is you know it uses way less ram doing that it uses less system resources doing that so I feel like I can I'm in a good position where I can actually get away with it and I have to worry too much about scale in the next you know in the next future anyway where I'm the only developer so 
um, yeah, I mean, that's like my biggest reason why I started doing it was because I, I needed to simplify things for myself and for my skill set and trying to be, I was trying to be re- like realistic about what I can do and what I can do well. Solo developer life. Yeah. And we just hired a new um, customer. What's her title? She basically is our liaison to the stores now. So it's it's now um, three three non-developers to one developer. So it's just more people for me to communicate with every day, which you know means that there's more time for me to kind of get distracted from the code. So uh, so far, I'm happy with how it's turning out. I don't feel like it was a bad decision. I think I'm in a unique position to where. Um, you know, because I keep showing you some Elixir stuff, and you're like, "That looks nice," but there's no way that I have time. Like, there's no way it would be even the right call for me to even yeah, think about. Yeah, I wish doing <laughs> doing a technology switch, but I, I feel like I'm a very spoiled person to where I mentioned that I could save us money, and my boss was like, "Do it." <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, so I actually have time in my budget to to do that. So I'm splitting days between, you know, I'm splitting like a half day on Ruby and half day on Elixir. And so far it's working out really well. Today's episode of Does Not Compute was brought to you by Linode. Linode provides speedy SSD-backed servers at an awesome price. Their plans start at only $5 a month for a one gigabyte server. They also have high memory plans starting at only $60 a month for a 16 gigabyte server. Make sure to check out Linode today by heading to linode.com slash does not compute. Sign up that link using the promo code does not compute 2017 to get $20 in account credit. That's up to four months of your own one gigabyte server to get familiar with Linode. Take a look at linode.com slash does not compute to learn more. Secondly, and, and more importantly, is is making sure the barrier to entry, entry, the barrier to entry.